Today we're wrapping up with a panel. So, gentlemen, I'd like to invite you up, and Adam and I are going to ask some questions, if you'll come. And uh, I'm going to sit on this end, and Adam, if you'll find your way to that one. Two of these men you already know. Some of you may know the other men on the platform that we've invited today. But our goal today is to field some questions that you have asked and some that we have framed because we think those questions are important. As a matter of fact, I've told each panelist, I may ask you a question that sounds like this. What is the one question you wish you'd have been asked? Which would imply that you've gotten something out of the week that they're grateful to hear you ask about or they just have a subject they want to talk about that may advance your understanding as you express Christ in this culture. Well, you already know Matt Jones, pastor of Delray Church in Los Angeles. You've met PJ uh, on Wednesday, pastor of Bethany Baptist Church in Bellflower. You may not know Steve Ross or Kempis Hernandez. So, Steve, will you introduce yourself to and just kind of tell us, number one, what you're doing and then maybe why you're here, other than the fact that we invited you? Why does this issue matter to you? Yeah. Um, okay, good. So, yeah, Steve Ross is my name, and um, I'm a bivocational pastor of Acts 29 Church in Ventura, and I also am a part of a ministry development staff at Children's Hunger Fund, where we equip churches for gospel-centered mercy ministry. Um, I think the reason why it uh, at least is on my heart, and I would accept an invitation like this, is just because the Master's University has become a dear part of my life. I uh, spent five, six years here with my family uh, working in student life programs, or I don't know what you all are calling it at this stage. Um, but it was my responsibility at that time, really, to help advance the conversation that we're in right now. Um, and I think one of the last things I was working on was uh, just creating a scholarship that would actually bring students uh, to the college uh, in, in a in an easier manner, I guess, in terms of recruiting and retention, and then at the same time focus not just on getting them here, but equipping them while they're here to go back into their context and to lead uh, not just in their context, but also globally. So I'm just passionate about cross-cultural engagement and racial reconciliation. Well, Steve, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Kempis, my friend from Calvary Bible Church, introduce yourself. and Guys, so my name is Kempis Hernandez, and I'm the uh, pastor teacher of Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, uh, California, here 20 minutes away. And um, I think for me, one, I'm an alumni of this university and uh, love Masters and love what Masters is about. I just... Uh, so encouraged by the powerful witness and testimony that this institution has. So that's one thing. It was an easy uh, yes when I was asked to be here. But the other thing um, I think too is um, the more that I wrestled with scripture over the years as a pastor, just as a believer, the more that I see that the gospel addresses every single issue of our lives. Amen? And that includes um, race or racism even in Christian circles. Um, the other thing is uh, for us in Burbank, uh, I don't know how much you guys know about Burbank, but it's a melting pot, and our congregation kind of reflects that. We just recently had a Sunday night um, international potluck, we called it, where 20-something ethnicities were represented there. And so it's a pastoral concern for me. Uh, there's not a week that goes by without me addressing in some way, shape, or form somebody 
somebody's prejudice or somebody's um, uh, sensing that maybe they're an outcast or ostracized uh, maybe because of the fact that they're from a different ethnic race. And so it's a pastoral concern for me as well. Yep. Thank you, Kempis, and thank you for joining us today. Very, very grateful. Well, Matt, we're going to start with you and PJ to kind of get us out of the gate. You invested a good bit of time on Monday advancing perspective that was meant to help us. And uh, if you would, and I know it was a fire hose, and that's, I think you use that expression. I don't disagree. Um, you were coming fast. You were coming hard. Um, boil it down. If you wanted to communicate to the folks you preach to on Monday, the one takeaway and the one practical application that you would want to be uh, the outcome of that message and you're preaching it here, what, how would you summarize it to kind of reconnect us to Monday? Uh, yeah, so Monday uh, I was here with you guys for chapel and I took you into Genesis and I cross-referenced the book of Romans. And we talked about a doctrine of sin uh, we talked about total depravity. We talked about concupiscence. We just talked about how man is messed up, basically. So uh, I started you in Scripture at the beginning in the creation account just to show you that sin messes things up. And what I emphasize to you is that sin messes things up in two directions. Vertically in our relationship with God and horizontally in our relationship with others. And then I proceeded to put the emphasis on the horizontal. I think for the most part, evangelicals understand sin in the vertical. I, I showed you a picture of a track that has uh, this, this, these two chasms, these two cliffs, with man on one side and God on one side. So I think we get that. We get that we're alienated you know, from God in our sin. So there's a vertical problem between the descendants of Adam and their creator. Uh, so that's us and God. Vertically, we're alienated from him. We are enemies with him. And we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. It's in our nature. We all say in our church, if you don't believe that you're born a sinner, we have some openings in children's church. We need volunteers over there. So you could come over to my house and watch my little vipers and little diapers and just see. They're crazy. You don't have to teach them how to sin. They just do it. So vertically, we're alienated from God. We're enemies with God. Okay, that's, that's, that's there. But then horizontally, and we traced a little bit in the storyline of Genesis, how man is now at odds with one another. And then I zoomed into the future from the garden into the city of Los Angeles, and I showed you this horizontal homardiology, how sin has messed up everything in Los Angeles. And then we, you know, zoomed back to Genesis, and we talked about the seed promise and Christ and the gospel and how he solves it all. So the big takeaway that I would want for you guys is just to know the horizontal homardiology of scripture. I think we get the vertical um, and, that, and that is the primary you know, issue, uh, but sin ripples out in the horizontal. And then being students in the greater Los Angeles area, having, having a little bit of a, you know, perhaps an eye opening, pulling back of the history to see the underbelly of racism in Los Angeles, you can go, whoa, that's an illustration of the horizontal homardiology. We could do this in any urban center. Everywhere where men go, we can show, uh, and we can pull back the underbelly of history and see all this ugly stuff under it. So the big takeaway is that sin has a horizontal ripple effect, and in the context of Los Angeles, you got to see what it looks like. And hopefully, you then can step back and respond with this theology practically 
to engage with compassion and sympathy with those who are hurting in the ripple effects of horizontal homardiology. PJ, talk us about, you talked about the biblical theology of ethnocentricity. Talk us about how you would want us to have kind of the, the fundamental takeaway from that sermon. And by the way, gentlemen, you both did a fabulous job of taking a lot into one message and advancing our understanding. So thank you for that. But boil it down, PJ, what do you want us to take away from that and the application that you would want us to make because of that? Thanks, brother. Um, so what I, what I tried to do was lay out dots along the biblical theological storyline that were pretty much not debatable for Christians. So whatever, wherever you are on the side of the debate, that everyone should be able to agree with those dots. What I tried to not do is connect the dots in, in a specific way because that's where the debates start to come. So I just wanted to lay out a, a framework that everyone should be able to agree on these 15 points, biblical theologically. And then I, I did draw some systematic theological points at the end. So what I'd want people to take away, or the reason why I didn't connect the dots was I don't want people to dismiss the conversation too quickly and just write off um, my sermon. And so um, what I want you to take away is that ethnocentricity or ethnocentrism and group-centeredness comes out in, and here's a, here's a connecting dot statement, it comes out in corporate unintentional expressions, and that corporate nature of sin is antithetical to the Great Commission. And because, it, therefore, since it is antithetical to the Great Commission, this is not merely a social issue, it is a Great Commission issue, it's a love your neighbor as yourself issue, it's a discipleship issue. Thank you. So jumping off of that, PJ, because I think what you just hit there, and Harry mentioned it, the, the phrase ethnocentrism you brought up, and I think to expand this question out to the panel would be, okay, if we, if we could see that there could be an inherent proclivity in us to uh, take ethnocentrism and it becomes sinful, uh, would love your, all you being pastors, how do you shepherd people to, um, to celebrate their ethnicity in good ways and, and receive it for what it is, whatever ethnic group they come from or identify with, whatever that may be, how do you celebrate that and enjoy that while at the same time not letting it become a sinful ethnocentrism that isolates or um, I think you, you talked about having a, a sense of superiority to another group. So maybe help us shepherd us through maybe the balance of I want to celebrate it and enjoy it because that's part of who I am, but not idolize it sinfully. Well, I'm happy that there's other brothers here to, to balance out my answer here. So I'll, I'll take the first crack and say, um, well, first of all, Genesis 1:28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You're going to build culture. You're going to have, you're going to have ethnic, you, you know, and then when you get into different groups, you're going you're gonna to build culture, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a necessary thing, actually, because you have, to, you have to live life. And so there's going to be ways of doing life that become normal to your group. And that's not a bad thing. That's just really reflecting the image of God and applying it in your, in your day. So, so that's, that's not something to feel guilty about. See, there are things there to celebrate because you're reflecting God's image. But to, to get to that second point about how do you make sure it doesn't become ethnocentric and you become group-centered, I would say that you need to, as Christians, first of all, be passionate about your holy ethnic people group. Or to use First Peter 2.9's words, be, be passionate about your holy, the, the fact that you're part of a holy nation. And that's the church of the living God in First Peter 2.9. So, so be passionate for that first and then let your enjoying and celebrating of your secondary earthly ethnic people group or culture um, let, let, that, let the celebration of that be intentionally 
tied to and serving your identity and mission as the holy nation. So in other words, that's just like, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever cultural expression you're engaging in and celebrating, do it for the glory of God. Do it for making disciples. Do it for the exaltation of Christ through the holy nation to the blessing of all ethnic people groups. And when you do that, you're actually gonna start to clarify what parts of my Christianity are merely cultural and, and flexible and which parts are actually non-negotiable. That starts a whole, a huge discussion, but. Amen. Um, when we talk about engaging culture, there's three things as Christians that we we respond with. So when you're engaging culture, you can refuse it or, or reject it. You say, you know, we don't do that. Uh, so there's like, uh, I don't know, crack or heroin. There's no Christian heroin. We don't do that. We reject that. That's just inherently bad. Thanks Amen, for that, Matt. Right? That, was, that was a helpful no, no Christian crack. Um, In case anybody out there was confused. Now, there, yeah, some no people were like, we can't, uh, you, you can't do that. So Thank you. You, there's things you reject. There's, there's things that you repurpose or reclaim where you, you might take something like a particular genre of music and say, well, we have Christian cowboy music or whatever. Okay, fine. There's nothing inherently wrong about cowboy music. Um, I like to say country music is an oxymoron, but anyway, so <laughs> you, can, you can reject, you can repurpose... Sorry, country music fans. Uh, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then third, thirdly, right, you can just receive. So, you know, like, I don't know, In-N-Out, uh, Chick-fil-A, you just receive that, you know. Granted, In-N-Out slaps Bible verses on the bottom, but whatever. You can just receive that hamburger. There's nothing, like, inherently wrong with it. So when it comes to uh, ethnicity, okay, there's going to be things in different ethnic groups where you have to sift through that and say, you know, we, we make certain cultural artifacts that we need to reject in, within our groups. We need to just say, like, that's wrong. There's other things that we receive, and then there's going to be other things that we're going to have to repurpose and reclaim in that. So there's a way in which, as a Christian, we, we want to value your ethnic identity, particularly for those who are, are members of marginalized classes. So young black youth in my church... Uh, I want them to be proud about being black. I want them to understand black culture. I want them to get that. I want you to, to, to understand your ethnic makeup, its narrative, its culture, and all that, and appreciate that. There's nothing non-Christian about saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud about my Latino context or whatever, my culture. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, racism, we always reject. It is always wrong. There is no way to do you know, I'm a Christian racist. No, no, like we don't do that. That's up there with heroin and the other bad stuff. We, we don't do that. So when you take your group and you step beyond ethnocentricity, so, so to be centric in evangelical, uh, you know, subculture, we talk about being gospel-centered is kind of a buzzword. So to be centered on something and then you say ethnocentric is to say, I view the world through a particular ethnic and cultural framework. I, I see things based on my ethnic, cultural, and my upbringing and other factors, or what we might talk about in terms of Christian discipleship, we talk about worldview. Now, as a Christian, I need to take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ, so I'm looking for the things in my ethnocentric lens that I need to reject. You've got to constantly be evaluating and doing that. In any case, there's nothing wrong with your ethnic or cultural Makeup. It's a part of the beauty of creation that God has woven into the pro creative properties of Adam and Eve, and particularly the descendants of Noah in that narrative, that you look around the room and there's this beautiful diversity. Celebrate it. 
Racism is when you take your particular, uh, and, and race can be a bit of a loaded word, where you start taking your group's identity based on ethic, based on culture, based on certain genetic, ancestral, hereditary, or physical features, and you ascribe ontological status to it. That is to say, you say, our group is better because we are taller than, shorter than, wider than, blue-eyed than, um, balder than, or whatever. You know, you take some arbitrary physical feature of your group and you say, we're better than you guys because our group has this feature. And you ascribe ontological value to this. The imago Dei of God that we are given by our creator is not a degreed property. They're not humans who are more imago Dei and those who are less imago Dei. We are imago Dei. We glorify God. And the beauty in our diversity reflects, I would submit to you, our Trinitarian creator, where there's oneness and there's diversity. And so too in humanity, we have a oneness. We're all humans and we have a diversity within us. And there's a great beauty in that. So I would say, celebrate diversity. It's Black History Month. Awesome, that's great. Cinco de Mayo rolls around. Awesome, that's great. What other groups are doing whatever, whatever else? That's great, we celebrate that. So when people come forward and say, our group is going through something or we're celebrating this about a particular group, as believers, we should rejoice in it, particularly if it's in that category of receiving, Maybe there's some things we need to reclaim, but always be watching out for the parts that you need to reject. And thanks so much, man. We knew we, he would need another sermon, so we brought him. <laughs> no, that was actually really good. I think the one, the one thing that I just wanted to uh, say to that is that there's that temptation or even the end of the question where the question is like, well, how do I make sure that it doesn't become sinfully ethnocentric? Um, and oftentimes that's based on uh, maybe a misunderstanding or even what we've seen where people have perverted it. They've either rejected it or they've started to make more of it. And there are some guardrails for us that the Bible's lined out. I think Paul and uh, the apostles and even Jesus himself really lines this out. But if you want to just look at uh, verses like Galatians 3, 28 and 29, Colossians 3, verse 11, that we find uh, even on Monday when Harry was up here, he said, you know, there's no distinctions that divide us. The problem is that if you don't actually listen to that full sentence, you will begin to think that there are no longer distinctions. And so why are we even having this conversation? We're one race and there's no distinction. Well, the truth of the matter is, is what's being said in both of those passages is that distinctions no longer divide us. They're no longer divisions because here Christ is all and he's in all. And so what we do is we find our central focus point, we become Christ-centric, gospel-centric, just like you said, uh, but that comes from the fact that the priority is placed on who Christ is, and then we can see the beauty of all of us making up a whole as opposed to something where it's like, you're that, I'm this, I'm better, you're not, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the, the, the verses uh, or the New Testament, the apostles, give us guardrails where we don't even have to be afraid of that. We don't have to worry about whether or not in Christ, if we are focused on the gospel, preaching it and living it, that we're going to have some circumstance where a person becomes too much of, you know, something uh, of what he is or, you know, in his person. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, just a couple of great passages, guys, for you to be meditating on. Um, this, these are passages that I've directed uh, individuals who've struggled with the whole issue of, okay, how do I, 
understand that I'm a believer, but yet at the same time there is this reality that we are culturally different, right? Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Um, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And he goes on to talk about, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception and so forth. And one of the, the most beautiful thing that we can hold on to as believers is that we don't locate our identity on our ethnicity or on our background or social accomplishments, even our education. Um, we shortchange ourselves when we do that. Our identity is in Jesus Christ first and foremost. That we, we are one in Christ first and foremost. And it's upon that foundation then that we can celebrate even the diversity within the body of Christ. Uh, one of the uh, best passages that I just kept thinking over and over again over the last few years as we've dealt with this issue is Acts chapter 2. You guys know when the Spirit arrives at Pentecost, uh, we, we go to that passage and obviously we're talk, we talk about the gift of tongues and obviously the, the, the Spirit's arrival and all of that. But we often overlook what actually took place and what the Spirit of God was indicating in Acts 2 was the international nature of what God was doing in calling a people from sin for himself, from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and all of that. So um, we celebrate our identity in Christ. We relish in that. And then it's that foundation upon which we need to celebrate also the international nature of what God is doing. So those are two key things to think about. Brother, one more quick. Just a verse to think about as a barometer. It would be Genesis eleven four, where it says, so you think about your culture. How do I celebrate it? Well, you just want to make sure you stay away from, let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth and not glorify God in that. And, and I would add, just kind of to boil it all down, make sure that your conviction is driven by a recognition that, number one, we have a common humanity. Uh, that, that whoever it is I'm dealing with is made in the image of God. And the fundamental likeness between us is massive. Whatever the differences are, those things are minuscule compared to the commonalities. So number one conviction is we come from a common humanity. We are of the same race. We do bleed the same blood. We do have common characteristics irrespective of what's different. And then secondly, I think the other big category is the conviction and it was just said, I am united as a family member. My identity is in Christ. It's in Christ. That's my chief identity, my common humanity and my identity in Christ. And if that governs you, you can celebrate the differences all you want because it's governed by that conviction. Adam is a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sorry. You didn't get to the Super Bowl this year, but the Philadelphia Eagles did, right? I was with them. Yeah. Solidarity in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I, I, I want to make an application. Adam and I root for different teams. He wears different colors. He wears a different hat. He celebrates a different part of Pennsylvania than I do. But we are brothers. We can celebrate that. We can laugh about that. He can wear the wrong jersey as I wear the right one. I can, can encourage or I can chide him about that. But we're brothers. That doesn't define us. 
we celebrate that. We actually enjoy the diversity. We can actually enjoy camaraderie irrespective of our differences. So I think even for the person who's been injured by a cultural experience, recognize that they're getting your identity wrong. Stand strong in your true identity, common humanity, and if you're a Christian, your identity in Christ. That will enable you to engage the differences in a way that are constructive and actually helpful and enjoyable. And if you travel the world, if you're into a church that sends missionaries, and I've had the chance to travel all over the world, what you find is a beauty in Christianity that knows no boundaries and no barriers. I can walk into a place I've never been, in a country I've never imagined being a part of, and feel at home because of what connects us in Christ and in our humanity made in the image of God. So bottom line, that's what I'd like you to think about as we kind of attach uh, application to this big, big issue. Celebrate it, but identify with the foundations that are blatantly biblical. Guys, I I wanted to ask you a question. Um, It's really practical from the sense of, I'm going to imagine that for many of us, we really want to be helpful in this category. And sometimes we make unintentional mistakes. We just make mistakes trying to bridge the gap or engage the conversation. What would you say are the most helpful kind of approaches that you would recommend and the biggest mistakes that you've seen to avoid? Okay, so if I want to engage this conversation, what do I want to do? And what do I want to be alert to not do? I think the, the first step is listening. Be slow to speak. Okay. Mourn with those who mourn. So if you have a friend who's a part of a particular uh, people group or ethnic group and uh, is feeling their group is going through something and you're not a part of that group, mourn with those who mourn. It's that easy. It's really that easy. Just sit with them, listen to them. And, and be with them in that and, and try and see it through their perspective. Another thing, I'm going to use Harry as an example. Let me, I wanna, I'm going to pick on something you just said because um, I, th- I think it is this question. Harry gave a great illustration, a sports illustration a moment ago. Uh, Steelers and whoever your team was, and, right? And we wrap different colors and whatever, but we're still brothers. Very helpful illustration. When we're talking about ethnicity, though, be careful with your illustrations because a person who's feeling marginalized, who's feeling hurt, who maybe saw something in the news and is opening that wound again of, of systemic breakdown, homardiology, horizontal stuff, and they're just going, man, I have this skin color and I'm seeing people with this skin color being broken down. We gotta be careful with some of our illustrations because you can take the Steelers hat off but you can't take your skin off and the perceptions that are there and how people see that. So uh, let me get a little maybe controversial here. Um, you know, we, you have like the BLM movement or whatever, right? And we start talking about Black Lives Mattering. Um, as, a, as a Christian, if, if there's a brother in your church who's talking about his particular group mattering, sit with them, listen to them, mourn with them, Okay. Now, there can be these other responses where we come with, um, I come from a police background, you know, and uh, you might say, blue lives matter or something like this. I say, yes, but your blue uniform you can take off. Um, and for the black youth who maybe is invoking 
Black Lives Matter, they might, I can't take that off. I'm stuck in this. So can you, can you listen to me? Can you hear me without responding with illustrations or other groups that matter or whatever? I think we gotta be careful with our illustrations and we gotta be careful with our speech because we can be misheard. An otherwise helpful illustration uh, could inflict pain on someone who just wants to be heard and just wants to be valued in that moment. I'm not, I think your illustration was fine and helpful, but if someone was hurting, that, that might not have been the place or the time for that. I hope that makes some sense. We just gotta be slow to listen, to hear, and to be careful with you know, how, how we respond. And you can even be honest, if you're, if you're sitting with someone and you say, you know, I, I don't know what to say in response. Help, you, you help me with this, because I, I don't wanna put my foot in my mouth, I don't wanna say something that you, you know, might hurt you or whatever, educate me, help me understand this from your perspective. I've been married 16 years. I think about this in terms of marriage. If my wife comes to me and she's heard about something, um, the right thing to do is not to respond with whatever, five facts. Let's assume she's wrong. Uh, she's watching live stream. I gotta be careful. But, you know, if she comes at me with something and she's really emotional about it or whatever, uh, and, and then I, I shoot at her five reasons why she's wrong or it didn't happen that way or whatever, th- that's not the time to do that. And again, I just did... Uh, what I was, uh, I was using Harry as an illustration, I just did it myself because that's marriage, right? So I could trivialize the experience of someone who's, who is trapped in their skin and feeling marginalized. And I go, I get it, it's kind of like marriage. <laughs> no, you don't get it, Matt. So just be careful with making those illustrations because often it's sort of like with the doctrine of the Trinity, don't do illustrations, right? It always ends bad. When you're listening to people's hurts, don't do illustrations. Don't say, well, it's kind of like this because it's not gonna be. So just sit with them and just listen and mourn with those who mourn would, would be what I would say. Yeah, I was gonna add that uh, obviously everybody has baggage. Uh, people have experiences that they've had personally or even as Matt in his sermon talked about some of the history. People have baggage even as far as what they know and they understand history to have taught in the area of race and all of that. I think we need to, if we're gonna be helpful, we have to understand that people have um, experiences that have impacted the way that they think. It doesn't mean that they're thinking rightly, but we have to start there. And the others, uh, I would also hit that from a different angle. Um, Some of you in here maybe um, have had um, experiences, personal experiences that have really impacted you in this area negatively. I think you also need to be careful with your baggage, that you allow the word of God to shape you and the gospel to shape your outlook of God and your outlook of relationships rather than make your experiences, negative experiences, authoritative. Well, they're not. That's part of why this conference is taking place because we're seeking to be renewed in the spirit of our minds by means of the word of God and what God has to say about these issues that flow from transformed gospel living, right? So I think you need to also make sure that if you are from... Uh, if you are um, uh, from a particular ethnicity and you've had those experiences, don't allow your experiences, if albeit negative, to dictate now your outlook and how you're going to always think about this issue. You need to return to the Word of God because your, the Word of God is your life source. So, yeah, um, I, I could speak from a different angle, and I think that that angle that I would come from in terms of perspective is that I I feel the responsibility to defend the cause of the minority being one. Obviously, all of everything that we're saying is embodied in my black skin, and so I promote this uh, 
this, all, everything that we're all saying, but I do it as a black man, and I'm often in context like this where I'm one of the few. And so what I had to do in, uh, or this, this encouragement I think is specific to students and anyone listening that may be like me, that I had to learn that this is not going to necessarily be something that changes just because I get on a stage like this. Uh, that it's a discipleship issue and it happens in the context of relationship. I've seen so much more fruit because two guys in a dorm room spend time doing everything that these guys are saying, which is listening to each other, getting to know each other. Uh, I would, you know, I learned from Dr. Lisa LaGeorge that helps students to understand how to get to know individuals individually as, a as opposed to stereotyping or, uh, you know, I, I have 10 black friends and so I, therefore I know everything about all black you know, people is one of the preconceptions that I would always have to kind of work with students on. So for me, it's just I had to take it out of the air and off the stage. And it had to be something that was being worked out personally and with people. And so the encouragement is that you would diversify your friendship circles and diversify even the voices that you're listening to. If you can trust that, uh, you know, you're both at the master's college studying biblical languages or whatever it is, but you come from different countries, different backgrounds, different cultures altogether, then you ought to be able to trust that you have something to learn from that person because they have a different outlook. And when you do that in the context of a trusted relationship and friendship and discipleship, it, it's, it, it, you grow by leaps and bounds and you become a better and more effective witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ as opposed to, you know, just always thinking that it's going to be left to the professionals and it's going to happen from the stage like this and actually make some kind of a difference. Let me piggyback on that. I, I uh, had an experience in Birmingham at a prayer summit, African-American pastors from the urban context, diverse group praying together. And uh, I, I don't really remember the trigger question, but a debate arose relative to this particular issue of race, its impact, our culture. Um, and I, I remember learning a valuable lesson that I really like to share with you. There was a lot of debate there were a lot of verses shared. There were a lot of truths told. There were a lot of challenging comments from both sides. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day, that before you debate, before you engage in conversations that rarely take a linear path, because they're emotional, they're relationally informed by those experiences. And some of those men had been fire hose. Some of them had relatives that were attacked by police dogs. They, they were so impacted by that. And then you have other guys who have no impact relative to that. So you're trying to have a Christian truth debate. You're trying to deal with the truths of Scripture and its application to real life. I learned that day that that's not where you're going to build the bridge. I learned that day that the only way over the, dis the differences was intentional relationship that for us began on our knees. I'm going to argue the greatest uniter of all is when people of difference who know Christ come together and seek the Lord together. It's a uniting reality. But beyond that, it's building intentional relationships. It's over the years in their home, them in my home, my church in their church, their church in my church. Over time, trust happens relationally. 
And when trust happens relationally, in other words, I know you love me and you know I love you, then we can have the conversations. But until relationships are built, debates and and dialogue in this category is very difficult to achieve a harmonious end. So less talking, more relating, more praying and engaging in real life to build a bridge of trust. I know that the men in Birmingham, when I left uh, three years ago, you know, they were in my church communicating love and affection, not because of any theological discussion we had, but because of love that we had shared in the city and out of the city. And the last thing I'd say, think about not doing and more about that intentional relating. Sometimes when we have minority cultures, especially churches, we want to help them. We want to go down to the inner city. We want to feed them. We want to educate them. That's fine. But it can't be divorced from relationship. Because they want dignity and peer equality. Not just you serving me. And I'm sharing something with you that I think if you'll think about ways that not only you can serve people but you can engage personally and relationally with those people even as you serve them. Because if it comes service and not relationship, something's lost. And I think that's an important approach to take and an approach to avoid. PJ, you want to add something? Yeah, so a common mistake would be, so the problem is that sin flies under the radar. We all have blind spots. Personally, and I would even say corporately, we have, we have blind spots. And so I think the problem, common mistake in this discussion, is that we tend to be defensive and so we want to justify ourselves first. If someone said, hey, PJ, you're homophobic, all of a sudden my defenses are up and I have 10 reasons why I'm not. So racism, if you're, if, we want to make sure that we're not racist so the defenses are all the way up. And so what that does is instead of assuming, that's why I try to frame it as ethnocentrism. Because no Christian should have a problem saying, like if I say, are you racist? You're going to say no right away. If I say, are you selfish? What are you going to say? Yeah, yeah, I wrestle with selfishness. If I say, are you self-centered? You're going to say, yeah, I wrestle with self-centeredness. Do you think you wrestle with self-centeredness corporately? At least that gives you enough pause to think. So, so instead of being defensive, be humble. And, and the default when I ask you, are you selfish, your default is yes. If I ask you, are you group-centric, your default should be yes. And, and so there's, gotta, there's some sins here that I'm not aware of. And so humility has to be. So I want to see my blind spots. right? As, as Christians, we all do. We want to see where our sinful blind spots are, and we want them to be uncovered. So, so I would say that the, the mistake is being defensive. The, the, antidote, the antidote there is to be humble. And then I would just say with that, um, with, with Harry's point, being intentional versus being passive. Brothers and sisters, you need to trust in God's grace. You will sin in this conversation. You will. You will have conversations with people. You'll discuss things, and you will say things that are insensitive. You'll say things that are sinful, and you will need to repent. Just trust the fact that we're, is anyone here perfectly mature spiritually? Is everyone complete in Christ already? No. And so let's engage, let's admit that, hey, I have personal and spiritual immaturities and incompleteness in my soul. And so I'm going to go into this discussion knowing that I need to grow. I'm still growing in these, I mean, we had conversations on Wednesday after the chapel and I'm learning things. So, so let's keep going. Trust in the grace that Christ died for our sins, past, present, and future. And let's, let's move forward in grace. you all for that and uh just rich each answer and just thank you guys for the time you've spent even in 
advance thinking about these and then interacting over it. Um, as we hit on, you know, how we, we can have the tendency towards ethnocentrism and also what we can do to not, you know, to be aware of our blind spots, um, you know, and sometimes it can be out there, but maybe let's bring it within the church walls and say, hey, we want to we wanna make sure before we're looking around and judging other churches that we look at our own church and say, what does it look like? Um, churches come in all shapes and sizes and often, though not always, reflect the demographics of our local community. So how can we think biblically about ethnic diversity in our churches? Specifically, if we're in a church that lacks diversity, how concerned should we be and what can we do about it? Um, you know, PJ and I had this discussion a little bit this week, and we've been talking about it probably for two years. But um, it, when, it, when you think about this issue of whether or not your church is diverse and whether or not you should have a multi-ethnic church uh, per se, I think it needs to be understood in the context that we keep trying to harp on, which is the Great Commission. And it also needs to be... Uh, it needs to be sensitive to every listener in terms of where is their community, where is their church situated. So for me, um, I, you know, I've, I've worked through this even on campus. I remember having deep conversations with this with Dave Hewlett. And we talk about, so is it wrong for a church that's in the middle of Osawatomie, Kansas to be an all-white church? Do they need to go and reach some uh, Hispanic or African-American communities? And the answer is, do they live there? And if they live there, the answer is absolutely yes. If they are not there, then there's misplaced guilt. If I say, well, your church needs to be more diverse, but you're in an all, you know, mono-ethnic neighborhood. The issue for us bringing it home, though, in Los Angeles is that that's largely not the case. 220 languages spoken in our schools. And uh, if you think about every area in which you would go, even when you get into suburban communities, they're increasingly more and more diverse. And if it's a Great Commission issue, and the Great Commission literally tells me that I'm going to make disciples of every ethnic people group, then I need to be very intentional with who I'm uh, reaching and why I'm doing that, namely just because the gospel redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so it's, it, 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 you got to hold it in tension, and you have to be willing to wrestle with that. Your neighborhood may even change. Your church could move. The church that I was sent out of as a church planner is a church that's in the city of Southgate that's 98% Hispanic. And we had moved from West L.A. where it wasn't that case. But when we moved there, we realized if God has situated us here, giving us a free building in the middle of a community that none of us even live in, then he's calling us to reach this neighborhood. So how do we do that? And I think that that's something that you have to wrestle with and stay in tension. I was going to say, um, so about nine years ago, we, when we got to Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, uh, my wife and I were at the tail end of seminary, wondering where we were going to be going for full-time ministry, maybe the mission field or whatever. And I remember uh, visiting Calvary and thinking to myself, wow, 90 plus percent Caucasian congregation. Uh, this is wonderful. However, I kept thinking to myself, this is not a reflection of the community of Burbank. And um, at that time, we had a choice uh, to either look at the fact that we were Hispanic, we were Latinos, my wife and I, she was born and raised here, I was born in Mexico with a Spaniard background, and look at that and think, well, you know what, we're Hispanic, we don't belong here. This is a primarily Caucasian congregation, godly congregation, but not for us because of our ethnic background. At that time, I even remember meeting with a mentor who asked me, um, what are you doing at a primarily white church? What are you doing? 
And I remember telling him, you know, I don't see it that way. I see the fact that we are believers, we're all Christians, and honestly, I want, I'd rather be a groundbreaker and be here, even though we feel uncomfortable many times, with the hope that one day maybe the Lord allows this church to become more of a, of a reflection of its community. And, and guys, I share that with you because that, that's what it might take for some of you, being in congregations that are godly congregations. People want to love the Lord. They want to do what's right. But you know that that church is not a reflection of its community. And you're there. Uh, maybe you're, you're from a different ethnic background, non-white, if you will. Um, it might take you having that kind of mentality by the grace of God to stay there because you love Christ and you love those brethren and to see, uh, because you might be the person that other people now look to when they come in and now they don't feel as uncomfortable because you're there. Um, I've talked to Asian brethren in our church and black brethren and who, have been, who initially want to leave our church over the years. And I tell them, listen, remember your identities in Christ. And also, do you feel like this is a church that preaches the word where there's biblical fellowship? Yes. Why, do you, why are you going to make those other secondary issues the problem? Stick around. And you know what? Um, it was beautiful to see an international potluck recently on a Sunday night where we had 20-something different ethnic uh, groups. Uh, people represented there. What did it take? Gospel grace. People recognize, and you know what? I need to, I need to connect to the real, with the great reality that I am one in Christ with these brethren, and I don't need to leave and segregate because of the fact that I, um, when I show, showed up, there weren't enough of my kind, if you will, right? So, guys, uh, time is flying, so we're kind of on the home stretch, and I've been tempted to ask this question. Obviously, we have lots of questions, but I'd really like because of your experience, your perspective, kind of what you know that we might not know, what question do you wish you'd have been asked today or would want to reflect on that's going to be very valuable as we at our university desire to mature? We want to develop wisdom in this category. We want to establish convictions that are going to make us uniquely Christian in a culture that is challenging. What would you want us to hear by way of a question on the table and an answer that you'd like us to think about as we prepare to kind of wrap up our week in this focus? Question you wish you'd have been asked. Go ahead, PJ. I actually think that next question on the list would be the one. Like that one? Would, would, would you like yeah, that one? I mean, yeah. I think that, yeah. That next question on the list. Hey, go ahead and ask it. Officially over here. Official question. Let's rewind the tape. So, guys, we just talked about this. You know. um, but actually, you used the um, campus used the phrase, the international potluck was a reflection of gospel grace. And you didn't say it's a reflection of social gospel grace. So, the next question was our speakers this week were clear that talking about racism is not a social gospel issue, it's a gospel issue. As pastors, how would you shepherd a person in your church who might be concerned that this is a social gospel issue or could be a slippery slope into the social gospel? What are some biblical considerations you would give them to answer that? Uh, I think it can be a slippery slope. I mean, a lot of things can be a slippery slope. So yes, it, you can slippery, or slide and slip into social gospel. Yet, um, Jesus prayed in John 17, 14, and 19, don't take them out of the world, Father, but sanctify them in your truth, and I send them into the world, knowing that there's going to be slippery slopes in the world. 
and yet you're to be sanctified in the truth and go engage. And so uh, even with that being said, I think the things I'd want someone to consider when they think, is this a social gospel issue? I'd want them to consider um, the nature of, of unintentional sin and corporate sin. I would want them to consider the Great Commission, um, making disciples of all ethnic people groups, consider what Christ purchased on the cross, namely people from every ethnic people group. Um, I'd want them to consider the privilege and cost of loving your neighbors. You know, um, so loving, when I, mean, when I say loving your neighbors, I'm talking about loving sinners, even saved sinners, will cost you. And loving all ethnic people groups, even the holy nation of your church, will cost you. First John 3.16 says, love is this, that Christ died for our sins, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so having a conversation like this, when you have these conversations, you're, you're, you're being attacked from all sides, right? You're being attacked from the church, you're being attacked from Christians, you're being attacked from non-Christians, and so, but that's what love costs. So count the cost, lay down your life, and, and love. So I, I'd say, think about that. I'd also say lastly, maybe, in terms of a, what kind of issue this is, understand that um, there is demonic deception and, strat and stratagems of Satan used to disable um, um, used to disable us from solving this issue in the church and then being a light to the world. And so I would say that we need to remember that nothing is automatic after conversion, right? It's not like once they get saved, this thing's gonna be taken care of. We don't say that about parenting. Oh, you know, they have parenting problems. So let's just save them and then they'll be good parents. They'll be good spouses. They'll be good anything. So it's not like all that matters is conversion and it's like the, the first domino and then all of it's just gonna automatically fall over. We still, though we believe Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, we also believe Philippians 2.12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you. And so don't just assume if we lead people to Christ that it's going to fall, we need to work it out intentionally in discipleship. I was just going to say, and I'll let you go, campus. Um, I always think of Paul in Galatians 2 and the way he describes his interaction with Peter he said I opposed Peter to his face because he was out of step with the gospel he said that Peter's hypocrisy and his pulling away from the Gentiles when the Jews came was something that was out of step with the gospel he made it an issue that was um it was more than just something that, you know, is based on your liking. And he actually goes on and says he was clearly wrong. So he said it was a sinful thing. And so for me, I always, in shepherding and talking to people in our local church, I'm help, I want to help people understand that this is a gospel issue and something that needs to be addressed. And it's not one that is trivial or even tertiary or secondary. Um, I think if someone is concerned about sliding into the social gospel, it's probably because of two things, one of two things. The first one might be a misunderstanding of what the social gospel is, which I would say is not a gospel since it focuses on social reform and not conversion and transformation. But it might be being confused with social justice, which I think is a very good thing. It's a very glory-giving thing, even further than what PJ just said about, uh, you know, your other uh, folks in your church who may be converted and things don't change right away, even beyond that, none of us would argue that it's not a glory-giving thing to fight for the unborn, to be someone who defends the cause of that child who would be aborted today, to stand there with a mother and to say, no, but what if it wasn't, what if the child does not, is not regenerate when they are born later? Or what if the mother doesn't give her life to Christ? Is it still a good thing? And so when you think about social justice, 
and don't confuse it with social gospel, then you understand that social justice actually upholds the gospel of Jesus Christ and is, again, a very glory-giving thing. The other part, the second thing that it might be is just fear. And I just want to read something to you. I wrote this down. Um, a second issue is that, you know, something that's often at play is fear. If you look closely at the passage in Galatians 2, what you're going to find is that in verse number 12, it says, "Being uh, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, talking about Peter. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. It was the fear of man. And I think that's what causes us to throw the baby out with the bathwater oftentimes, is that we're afraid of what other people will think, and so we don't engage. John Piper talks about this a lot. If you go just on his website and look up some of these things about what is God glorifying diversity and Christ honoring unity in the body of Christ, he talks about the fact that we need to repent of the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man lays a snare, but, but whoever trusts in the Lord is free. And so we need to not be concerned about what other people might think because it does stifle you. And so I think it's just one of two things a lot of times when we're afraid of it, and so then, therefore, we don't engage. Kempis, you want to give us a final comment? Yeah, just uh, piggybacking off of that, I think um, I think we do need to recognize if we're going to, it's a great shepherding opportunity with somebody who's wrestling with that to really, it provides us an opportunity to ask them questions, really to clarify the gospel. Well, what would you say is the gospel if they're wrestling with that? Because you got to admit, we have muddied the waters a lot with the whole social justice conversation and all of that. Social justice isn't the gospel message. It's, an, it's a necessary, natural implication of gospel-transformed living. So I do think we need to ask them questions as we shepherd them. Well, what is the gospel? And once we've clarified that is um, recognize that God is a God of justice. So therefore, a natural, necessary implication of the gospel, of gospel-transformed living, is that we would live with one another in a loving manner in this particular area. So, Can you say thank you to these men for their time? <laughs> And gentlemen, we are truly grateful for your investment in us this week. We know we've only scratched the surface. Uh, for some of you that are interested in ABLE from 11 o'clock until 1 o'clock today, these men will be on the deck of the cafeteria uh, so that you can gather and maybe ask other questions uh, so that you can dialogue a little further. If you have the opportunity to do that, you are welcome to do it. Let's stand together for a closing prayer and let's invite the Lord to take this week and uh, really multiply its impact both here on our campus because it starts here. If we can't get it right here, it's going to be difficult to take it somewhere else. So let's commit ourselves to manifesting Christ even on our campus. Father, thank you for this morning. And this week, thank you for the opportunity we share to have access to the truth, a worldview defined by the living God that enables us to understand the world in which we live and the, not just the things going on outside of us, but things that go on inside of us. And Lord, by your spirit, through your word, would you conform us to the image of your son? Would you bring conviction where it needs to be brought humility as an expression of our awareness 
that without you, we can't do anything and that the task is too large, whether it's individual or corporate, to express Christ without the power of Christ and his spirit in us. Lord, would you make us a community that expresses the unity of the body of Christ and love for humanity? Lord, would you give us a kind of listening ear, a responsive heart, a patient spirit, Lord, margins of love so that we can endure our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others. Lord, make us what we're not and use this week as a seedbed to bear fruits of righteousness that, Lord, don't exalt us, but exalt the gospel, that exalt and elevate Jesus Christ, the reconciler, who takes those who are far away and those who are near and makes them one. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what the cross secured. Lord, our forgiveness, our vertical restoration, but Lord, the potential for horizontal restoration. Make us agents of grace. Thank you for these men, their investment in us. Thank you for the resource that they are. And we're very grateful for a great week. Make us what you want us to be so that God is honored and people see the Lord who is Lord, created us and gifted us with his son to change us. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great, great week.